We are continuing our series through 1 Samuel, so if you have a Bible with me, please turn to 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 28. Samuel is a book all about how God sustains Israel in the period between when they were ruled by judges to the point in which God gives them a king. And of course, it's a bumpy road to get from judges to having a godly king such as David. And we have been sojourning with David in the wilderness for some time now as he is the Lord's rightful anointed, but Saul is still the king. And so David has faced immeasurable hardships as he has walked his pilgrimage waiting on the Lord, waiting for the Lord to deliver him from all of his enemies. We are approaching the end of this book, and and as we do, it's... uh, this, these stories are meant to function as contrast between David and Saul's. We see what it looks like to be a godly and faithful king and what it looks like to be godless and faithless. Three strikes and you're out. It's a general truth more than just rules for a game. Uh, maybe not three, but re- repeated failure often leads to Disaster. If you persist in breaking the law, then you will face more and more consequences to the point where eventually you will be incarcerated. And relationships, if you continue to um, sin against one another, you find that the relationship becomes fractured to the point that it's no longer a relationship. As As 1 Samuel draws to a close, it ends almost abruptly with the death of Saul. Saul, a genuinely tragic character, persisted in sin to the point of no return. Three strikes and you're out. This morning, as we turn to chapter 28, the narrator sets up one last contrast between Saul and David. We saw last week that David lost faith in God and doubt led him to seek safety among the enemies of God. And similarly, Saul, who has persistently lacked faith, In God, in this lap episode before his death, he tries in vain to manipulate God and ends up earning the death penalty for it. An apt comparison of this contrast is also seen in the Gospels between Peter and Judas Iscariot. Peter lost faith and denied Jesus at a very crucial time, but later, because he repented, he received the forgiveness of God. Judas also lacked faith. But he persisted in sin to the point that he was hardened by it, beyond repentance, and making him a fit instrument of Satan's in the betrayal of Jesus. In the end, there was no room for repentance for him, though he sought it with tears, leading him to his own, taking his own life. David as we saw last week, got himself into a tight spot that forced him to look in faith to God to deliver him, which we will look at next week. David did lack faith amid a life of persistent faithfulness, but Saul lacked faith amid a life of persistent faithlessness. This strange episode in Saul's life is the climax to a life of sin, a life of going his own way, a life of refusing to listen to God. It is brimming with irony and conjures up many, many questions, questions the narrator doesn't bother to answer. 
Saul and the witch at Endor provide in his story a deep theological truth. And it's a sobering one. There comes a point when those who continue in sin will be forever condemned to continue in sin. Those who persistently abandon God will find themselves coming to a place where God will finally and forever abandon them. And this climax to Saul's tragedy is dark and fearful. And there is much here to be warned by. A sober reminder not to persist in sin. But when we read this in light of Christ, we find that Jesus shines in the dark, bringing us hope that we don't have to, we don't have to end up like Saul. So let's read this text together from 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're going to begin in verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was greatly afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by his spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. And then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. 
And there was no strength in him, for he had, not, he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it, and baked an unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. We find strange things here that perplex us. We ask for wisdom as we open it, that you would give us an understanding heart, that we would know the truth. For we pray this in Christ's name, and amen. You have to admit that this is a strange episode. A witch, the spirit of Samuel coming up from the grave. How are we to read this? Verse 3 is a twofold introduction, showing us that Saul has no access to divine instruction, whether legitimately through the prophet or illegitimately through the necromancy. Samuel is dead, and he has banished the mediums and necromancers from the land. So verse 3 frames the whole episode, which divides neatly into two parts. As Saul exhausts the legitimate means of finding out the mind of God, And he resorts instead to consorting with the dead. You see, when you have chosen to walk a course that leads away from the Lord, fear will be the dominant uh, emotion that you feel. Over and over again, the narrator draws our attention to the fact that Saul is deeply afraid. He is terrified. He is greatly distressed. We get a sense of the foreboding that he feels. Saul seems to suspect that this may be his last battle. For he he glimpses the gathered forces of the Philistines and he is seized with terror in verse 5. And after trying to reach God through all the usual means to no avail, Saul has men search for a medium or a witch so that he can go and inquire through her in verse 7. And there is such a witch, but the journey to reach her lies across enemy territory and will require secrecy for its danger, but also because it's lawless. He's not supposed to be going to see a medium. Saul will have to resort to doing his deeds in the dark, where sin is most comfortably carried out. So he willingly strips himself of his royalty, takes off his royal garments, And he takes on the clothing of a commoner, a fitting image for a man who is only acting as a king. Verse 8. The witch of Endor is is cautious because Saul has previously banished all the mediums. In an effort to keep at some point in his life to better keep the law, he had done what he should have done. But he clearly doesn't understand the spirit of the law. He may be, he understands the letter, there shouldn't be mediums, but he is not persuaded in his heart so that he still confers with one. 
Saul persuades her with an oath in Yahweh's name that no punishment will befall her for breaking God's law, adding insult to injury. Saul's oath is absurd. He is, he is saying that the God who is holy and just and right will not punish this lawlessness. He, he cannot offer something like that. They're, they're two contradictory things. But he is desperate. So he pleads with her to call up Samuel, which she does. And when she sees him, she's startled. Perhaps this was the first time that she was successful in calling up somebody from the dead. Maybe she had convinced other people that she saw the dead, but now she really does see the spirit of Samuel, and that startles her. Whatever the reason is, somehow she realizes that it is Saul who is asking this of her. And Saul, he cannot see the spirit with the witch, which the witch can, so he asks her for a description. Upon hearing that he's an older man wearing a robe, Saul is convinced that it is Samuel, and so he pays homage to him. Now remember that Samuel and Saul had quite a history together. Samuel, after condemning Saul for his disobedience to listen to God by sparing Agag and keeping some of the livestock of the Amalekites, as he, as he turns away from giving that message that the kingdom will be... Ta- as he turns... Because Saul had disobeyed him, Saul grabs hold of his robe and it tears. And Samuel uses that as an illustration. Just as my robe has been torn, so will the kingdom be torn from your hand and given to your neighbor. So Saul has an intimate acquaintance with not only Samuel, but this robe. Samuel warns Saul. And Saul responds that he is afraid. And he and God are not speaking, they're not talking. God is not listening to him. He's not responding in any of the usual ways. And so he has brought Samuel up from the dead so that he can ask him, what should I do? I don't know what to do in this situation. And God is not speaking to me. The the obvious question is, is this really Samuel's spirit? Leviticus 20 verse 6 says this, If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. You see, God did not prohibit necromancy because it's fake or it's some kind of a hoax, but because it's detestable. It is a part of the unclean practices of those who dwelled in the land before Israel took possession of it. So I think... This really is the spirit of Samuel. Skepticism is a modern feature, right? We are prone to just be skeptical. We read things that have to do with the realm, the spiritual realm, with with which we have no access by our own senses, and we are prone to doubt. But I don't think that the text is not concerned with defending whether or not this is the spirit of Samuel. And, And so I think the best way to read it is to believe that it is. Samuel has come back. His spirit has come back from the dead to give a message to Saul. God has rejected Saul because he did not listen to him. And now he is Saul's enemy. It gets worse from that. I mean, you think, how could it be worse that God is 
my enemy. But the very next day, Saul and his sons will be with Samuel. They will be dead. And the Philistines will overcome Israel. And Saul, of course, he was not prepared for that kind of message. And what little strength he had consumed with dread over the message, he just collapses. And he has to be nursed back to life by the witch and his bodyguards. Now, there are two things that I want to draw from this text as we look closely. Both center around the terrible idea that it is possible the Lord will abandon a person who persists in abandoning Him. This raises questions about perseverance and the nature of saving faith and the the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And after examining these two issues... I want to look back at this episode through the lens of the person and work of Christ. Because on the surface, this is it's not a hopeful passage. It's a, it's a sober and fearful passage. But I want to show you that embedded in that, buried in the text, is hope. Only when we look through Jesus Christ. So, for the first, God won't listen when you won't listen. It's not surprising that God doesn't respond to Saul's inquiry as we have watched Saul time and time again turn away from what God had told him to do, to do his own thing, to chart his own course. He might listen to a fraction of what God said. I'll do this. I'll take he, But he was very pick and choose. I'm going to take this part and reject this part and kind of make my own way. And that... From our point of view, it makes perfect sense knowing that God has rejected Saul from being king, has taken his spirit from him, and as Samuel says in verse 16, the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. Saul's behavior is almost laughable as a desperate man who has refused to listen to God tries everything to get God to listen to him. But it might come as a shock to you, especially in our Western context, that there may come the point in someone's lifetime that God will no longer listen to them. We have allowed our view of God to be manipulated by what I've called moralistic, therapeutic deism. So we can no longer conceive of a God who is not always there waiting at our beck and call. God is nothing more than a divine butler, always waiting and ready to answer me when I cry out to him. Today, many in the church have adopted this attitude, which characterizes Saul. Saul had relied on God only when and where it suited him, when he should have been taking action, fighting the Philistines and pushing the boundaries of Israel's border into lands that were promised to them, we find him passive, waiting, relying more on Jonathan and David to take action and then resenting them for it later, resenting his own son, resenting David for doing what God had called Saul to do. Saul cries out to God for what to do and expects not only an answer, but an easy answer. One that will not require sacrifice from him and assurance that he will be victorious. 
But those who attempt to use God in this way soon find that God is no no longer for them, but has turned and is their enemy. Westminster chapter 5, section 6 says, As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge for former sins, does blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion for sin. And withal gives them over to their own lusts, to the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. Saul won't listen to God. God won't listen to Saul. Saul has hardened himself past the point of no return. But lest this overly discourage those saints who wrestle with sin, let me remind you that Saul has spent a lifetime Not listening to the voice of God. Saul has had ample opportunity over and over again to repent. But his life has been characterized. His entire life can be characterized and summarized as not listening to the voice of God. As a case study, Saul does not undermine the doctrine of perseverance. Jesus clearly said two essential things that must guide our view of this situation. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They will follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. That claim that Jesus makes is not inconsistent with what we see unfolding in the life of Saul. Instead, we see that Saul has never heard the voice of Jesus because he does not know God. Take as evidence that he did not obey the voice of God. God told him in 1 Samuel 15.3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul, acting like it's no big deal, spares the king and the best of the livestock. He saw what he did as obedience. In his eyes, it was the people who sinned. He says this in response to Samuel, and In chapter 15, verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Wow. Presumptuous. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. In Samuel's response, he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Listen to this. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul resembles the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, evil men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see, he's kept the letter of the law. But he has missed the Spirit. And Jesus says it is the one who beat his breast, refusing even to lift his eyes up to heaven, but pleaded with God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was him that went to his house justified. Can we find safety and assurance that God will cause us to persevere until the end? Of course. As Jesus said, he will not lose any that the Father has given to him. But there is a warning here as well. Saul was a circumcised member of the people of God. He was baptized. He was a good, upstanding member of the community. He came to church. He read his Bible. He tithed meagerly. Don't think that your church attendance or your Bible reading will save you. They will not. Only a lively faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will save you. And as James has warned us, the faith that saves is always accompanied by works that demonstrate its presence. Some may sit in church their whole life seeking the benefits that come, but with none of the accompanying fruits. God will not be mocked. If you refuse to listen to the voice of God over your lifetime, you should not be surprised when you find silence from heaven at your hour of your greatest need. Because God is holy and just. Those who persist in abandoning God will be abandoned finally by Him. God won't listen when you won't listen, but God also won't change when you won't change. Since Saul has been paying little attention to God, instead of interpreting his silence as a call for repentance, he sees it as a challenge to overcome. He doesn't say, God isn't listening to me. What? He doesn't examine his heart and say, how can I turn from this so that God would turn to me? He says, I will find another way around. I will manipulate God so that he has to speak to me. I don't know about you, but if God is silent to my prayer, I am not tempted to find some witch who will bring back a dead pastor who has guided me in the past. This is not a particular temptation that I, that I have. But to Saul, Samuel was the last reliable word from the Lord that he received. Consulting a medium, as we read in Leviticus 26, is a capital offense. When he was feeling like following God, Saul had previously banished mediums and necromancers from the land. And that's good. He should have. But now he needs one. 
One is found, but she lies across enemy lines. To see her, Saul has to go under cover of darkness, disguised as an ordinary person, illustrating the great lengths that we will go to to manipulate God. But all Saul is showing is that this has been his way all along. This is the only way he knows how to relate to God. Banishing mediums from the land was something he should have done, but he also should have cultivated the relationship with God's ordinary means of grace. But he didn't. Instead, he refused to listen to Samuel, a prophet, and then he killed all the priests in Nob, losing priestly access and and the ephod with the Urim and the Thummim, those two casting stones that could give him yes and no answers from the Lord. You see, Saul hasn't changed. He's operated the same way every time. When it comes to his relationship with God, it's always about Saul and not about God. It's about what can I get out of this transaction? What do I need to do? Just tell me what to do and I'll do that so I can get the benefit. But Saul doesn't want God for God's sake. He wants God for what God can do for him. When I say God won't change, I don't mean, of course, change who he is. God is unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But we change. We understand change. For we understand limits, finitude. But we cannot comprehend the simplicity of God. That he is and is perfect and not becoming like we are. But because there is an infinite gulf between God and us, he has condescended by way of covenant and relates to us in ways that we understand. Calvin says he lisps to us. He speaks baby talk to us. It's not as if the mother who is saying goo-goo and gaga to her child doesn't know how to speak English. She does. She is speaking endearingly to her child, lovingly, condescending to his or her level. When we repent, God repents. So God changes his relationship towards us when we change our relationship with him. Nothing changes intrinsically to who God is. He's always been the same. But our relationship to him changes. And you know this. If you have been a Christian for more than a day, you know that when you sin, your relationship with God is changed. Now you are like Adam and Eve. You are hiding from God. You're trying to cover your sin and you're moving away from him. Has God changed his relationship to you? No, but it feels like it. It feels like he is abandoned you. But in reality, you have abandoned him. Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents. He changes over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Joel says, turn to God and he will turn to you. You change and God will change and be gracious to you. 
the scary thing, the terrifying thing to think about is, is that there comes the point in your life when it's too late. At that point, God is, as Paul says in Romans 1, gives you over to your sin. I want you to listen to Paul's description of this kind of person in Romans 1.28 and see how apt a description this is of Saul. And I'm going to substitute Saul's name. Listen to this. This is Paul speaking. And he says, And since Saul did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave him up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He was filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. He was full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. He was a gossip, slanderer, hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventor of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though he knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such thing deserve to die, he not only did them, but gave approval to those who practiced them. Saul knew that consorting with a medium was a sin worthy of death. He not only did it, but he said, The Lord will not punish you. He gave his consent, he approved of her behavior. Saul refused to change. And his attempts to manipulate God brought him face to face with an unchanging God whose word to Saul remained the same. I have torn the kingdom from you and given it to David. Moreover, tomorrow I will give you and your sons into the hands of the Philistines and the army of Israel will also fall. God's word of judgment is irrevocable and confirms Saul in the hardness of his heart. Why? Because Saul persisted in sin. He never changed his way. He never listened to the voice of God. What about you? You may be sitting here today convicted as I am also. For if we are honest, we do persist in sin. As David said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some of you grew up in the church and Jesus has always been your Savior and you have always endeavored to walk in the way of God and yet your testimony is the same as those who were converted later in life. It's the same as Paul's in Romans 7. For he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Martin Luther famously said in his 95 Theses that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. That means the Christian life is one of constant change. You are always facing the judgment of God so that you can turn towards the mercy of God. You are always facing the judgment of God so that you can turn to God's mercy. This is certainly terrifying if we read this passage in isolation. But if we read it in light of the gospel, in light of Christ, there is hope for erring sinners, even the likes of Saul. 
Saul did not listen to God, so God did not listen to him. Saul did not change his behavior towards God, so God did not change his behavior towards him. Over and over we have seen that Saul is one who justly deserves God's wrath and displeasure. But what of Jesus? Jesus listened to God and was faithful to carry out his will. Jesus didn't need constant change for he lived a perfect life free of sin. But as Jesus hung on the cross, bleeding and dying after being beaten severely, he cried out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus, who never abandoned the father, was abandoned by the father as he became sin for us. He became the Son who never listened to the Father. He became the one who refused to change, who persisted in sin. And He so suffered as our substitute so that remarkably, all of us who are lifelong have done a great job at abandoning God can now be assured that the Father would never abandon us again. Jesus was abandoned by the Father so that you don't have to be abandoned by God. If you have trusted in Christ, however much you wander, however much you are prone to persist in the same sins, God shed His love abroad in Christ. Christ was abandoned. You don't have to be. The story of Saul teaches a scary truth that those who abandon God will one day be finally abandoned by Him. But the message of the Gospel is the counter story that says, although you abandon God, He will not abandon you. He will cause you to persevere until the end. So when is the point of no return? When are you too far gone? When it is no longer today? then let me plead with you to change. But as long as you have breath, as long as it's called today, then today is the day of salvation. Don't keep persisting in sin, but turn. It's not too late. Embrace Jesus as your Savior. And to you who have already embraced Jesus as your Savior, the life of Saul has been a consistent warning not to take your status as a member of the covenant community, for granted. You cannot rest in your attendance at church or your prayer or your Bible reading. They will not save you. We can subtly turn these into magic formulas to manipulate God without ever falling into some sort of New Age mysticism or the occult. God wants your hearts, not lip service. He wants obedience Not just outward performance. Don't go as far as Saul did, persisting in sin. Cease today and turn again to God. Who knows whether he might relent from his anger and turn and be gracious towards you, forgiving your sin and restoring you to the right relationship with him. And if you've been trying to manipulate God through your religious actions, stop. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. 
So sow righteousness and reap steadfast love and faithfulness. Sow the seed in sincerity. Be genuine in your approach to God. Come to worship because you love God and can't wait to be in His presence again. Don't come because your wife dragged you. Read your Bible because in it you see Jesus and are reminded of God's great and mighty works in your salvation. Not because it's another thing to check off your Bible reading plan. Done. God has to give me a good life now. Pray because you can't help but express your love and devotion to God in words of faith. Not because you're trying to get something from Him. Don't turn the ordinary means of grace into ways that you can try to manipulate God. He will not be. And each time you do, each time you do, you will be hardened by sin to the point that if you keep that up your whole life, you will find yourself in the regrettable position of Saul. Because God is holy and just, those who persist in abandoning God will be abandoned finally by Him. But those who draw near to God in Christ, He will never abandon again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Prone to wander, Lord, I know it. The good that I would do, I don't do that. The sin that I hate, the evil that I don't want to do, those are the things that I find so easy. Father, forgive and grant to us repentance so that we may turn And listen and hear the voice of God. Change us and we will be changed. Turn towards us and be gracious and compassionate. Be slow to anger. Show us your steadfast love. Be merciful. Remember who we are. We are but dust. So we humble ourselves and we plead for your mercy. And assure us. Assure us of the love of Christ that you will cause us to persevere until the end, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Amen. We believe that. And we trust in Jesus alone. Help us, Father, so that we do not fall into manipulating you. Help us to hear the voice of God and listen and obey. For we pray this in Jesus' name. and Amen. Saints, let's stand together and respond by singing.